In Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Today we wake up and realize we are all in the apocalypse. This is Day 13. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together, we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Welcome to day 13 of the Journey Through Daniel podcast. I'm here once again with Brendan Lang. Hey, hey. And we had to bring in a specialist because this is day seven. Or not day seven. This day, is day 13. This is, this day is 13. chapter seven. We have two days of chapter seven. This is, and we've talked about this before. This is the most important chapter. At least I see it as the most important chapter. You see in it Daniel, that the way. way. The yeah. way it's structured. You'll it, have to it prove it to this. us. But, but not only that, it's like you look at the New Testament. Like the New Testament draws on this chapter more than any other chapter. It's one of Jesus' in the book of favorites, Daniel. I we hear. Yep. Yeah. So we read the first six chapters. We know those stories, but this is central to New Testament theology about Jesus. And so we did bring in an expert. Yeah. I happen to know him pretty well. It's my brother, Brandon Hoff. Yeah, an expert and specialist. <laughs> Great specialist. way to set me up to fail here. But of those of us at the table, you're the only one with a master's in New Testament theology. In this group, you're at least the specialist on this. So welcome. Now we have Brandon and Brendan. Yeah, I sure hope that's not confusing for that, Everybody messes that up. So this is going to be a test of Tyler. Well, the nice thing is today I can just say one of them and somebody will answer. That's right. Even if I forget, you <laughs> that's know, that's right. It'll be good. So I have a question for today. Have you ever lost one of your senses? You know, like COVID is happening and one of the first signs is you lose your taste and smell, right? Which is terrifying because there's a lot of good things to taste and smell. Mm. But you don't say taste I, and see. There's a verse about that, right? That the, Lord the Lord is, Lord is good. good. Yeah, that's right? from Psalms. Sure, but yeah. for right now, we're having eyes to see. I'm curious, have you ever lost any of your senses? I mean, I've been put under anesthesia and <laughs> that's <laughs> called a being dentist, a shot Brendan. in my mouth the other day and I couldn't oh because so you can feel, feel your yeah. mouth yeah I guess I don't think I've ever I mean I haven't had COVID yet to my knowledge I'm waiting for an antibody test actually that's um, good to from know giving well from giving blood it would just be oh nice. okay I yeah. was like well you should have let that know before I walked in this room with you but okay <laughs> no I, it's a different kind of test what about you Brandon I once rode a roller coaster with my glasses on and lost them. Mm. And so I had to live with my prescription sunglasses for a while, which darkened everything, <laughs> even at nighttime. But I think that's it. So you're a little bit obstructed, not right, fully right. losing it. Yeah, the closest thing I've gotten is I got pink eye once when I was on a trip in Costa Rica. And it's not that I like lost my senses, but my eyes hurt so much I didn't want to have them open. And then in the morning you'd wake up and they'd be so like gunky and crusty that like I couldn't open them. They were like stuck and sealed shut until I would like wash them out. So like I'm in a foreign country and I'm like stumbling around blind to try to find the bathroom every morning and usually spent most of my time with my eyes closed just because it hurt. And that was debilitating experience. Hmm. But today we're talking about enabling all of our senses, including the ones that we think that we've enabled, but probably haven't. Well, this is an interesting a, way to put it. Well, we'll see. You, you tell us. You, see. you think you see, but do we, you see? We might see, provided we have eyes to see. <laughs> Ooh, Okay. We, was that the segue that I was supposed to let you do? Well, I mean, listen, 
you can step on my toes. That's fine. We yes. should have had a different question. We should have had a question about like, Brandon, tell us about what was Tyler like as a 13 year old? I think that was oh, a question. Blunder years. <laughs> that is not a question that you want to hear the answer to. You can answer it. I don't it. think Go. it would be helpful. Go. Tyler mocks me. Go ahead and answer that question. That's fun. In a lot of ways, Tyler was the same as he is now. He was getting started in video production and light production design, and he knew everything. <laughs> that most 13 year So Tyler has not changed. Right. Oh, goodness. I don't like this. <laughs> you asked the question, and I politely declined to respond at first. I'll have that. I did say those things. Anyways, eyes to see. Brendan, why don't you take us through our commentary for today and get us some eyes to see here. Day 13, A Vision of Four Great Beasts. Chapter 7 marks a critical juncture in the book of Daniel. It concludes the Aramaic section of the book, which runs from Daniel 2 to 7. It also marks the beginning of the apocalyptic section of the book, which runs from Daniel 7 to 12. Technically, we have already encountered some apocalyptic material in the dreams of Daniel 2 and 4, but whereas Nebuchadnezzar's dreams were a part of narrative stories, the dreams and visions we read now in the second half of the book of Daniel are just that, dreams and visions. The apocalyptic material we read in this part of Daniel can seem very challenging, but a couple tips can make this part of the book less imposing. First, it's critical to know that an apocalypse is not necessarily a depiction of the end of the world as one might think from watching Hollywood Christianity. An apocalypse is simply an unveiling, a revelation, or a vision of the world through a different set of lenses. Viewing the world through this perspective can help us see reality the way God sees it. Second, the main themes, images, and ideas that we've encountered in the first six chapters all reappear in the final six apocalyptic chapters. The book of Daniel wasn't haphazardly put together. A lot of creative genius went into designing this book. If we read it slowly and sensitively, we can appreciate the masterpiece that it is. The opening verses of Daniel 7 draw on a number of important themes related to the first half of the book. They describe four great beasts that crush and devour their victims while speaking arrogantly. This imagery is reminiscent of Daniel 6 where conspirators falsely accused, literally devoured Daniel, and where lions crushed their bones. It is also reminiscent of Daniel 4 which describes how Nebuchadnezzar devolved into a beast after he failed to rule with justice and humility. That alone should give us a clue about the significance of the four beasts. Finally, the appearance of four symbols in a dream should remind us of the dream in chapter 2, where four metals represented four kingdoms of this world. We will spend another day working through this critically important vision, but we can already see that Daniel 7 contains yet another prophetic critique of worldly empires. Through this apocalypse, God wants us to perceive that leaders and the structures they manage can behave like beasts, trampling upon the weakest among them. For day 13, we're reading Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. 
It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Brandon, do you want to take us through our reflection questions for Day 13? Day 13 Questions Apocalyptic visions like what we read in Daniel 7 use vivid images to reveal an alternative perspective on reality. What makes images effective in shaping our view of reality? What feelings do you have when you envision the scene of four beasts? Question two, how has God already been opening your eyes throughout the book of Daniel? All right, we're about to wade into Daniel 7. You've described it in the past as the most important or hinge chapter of this. What does that mean? The hinge? Because uh, well, like, until now, I've thoroughly enjoyed Daniel. Some good stories. That's right. We're talking about kings and conquerors falling and fun dreams. There, it's, that's not done. There so were some lions. <laughs> the lions were a good part. Yeah, they're really easy to make cartoons of what we've seen so far. Yeah, right? the flannel like graph. the ones we grew up with, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. Assuming you can make popular. cartoons of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just, Sunday uh, school would be a lot more intense. This, this would like, be more like Godzilla. <laughs> yep. Anime. Toho production. Something right? like that. Yeah. Well, what's going on here? Why is Daniel 7 such a hinge chapter for this? What I would want to point out here is it's the way the book of Daniel has been organized. So we've talked about this before, this idea that the first six chapters of Daniel are all narrative. The last six chapters of Daniel are all apocalyptic. And if that was the only way that Daniel was organized, well, Daniel 7 wouldn't necessarily stick out. It would be the beginning of a new section. I'm just going to stop you right there. Apocalyptic. We talked about this sort of in the intro to this whole thing. It doesn't seem very apocalyptic what we've talked about up until now. What's different? Why is this apocalyptic? Did you pay attention to what you just <laughs> read and how different? We yeah, could talk it was about the very genre. confusing. There were tons sure. of animals all combined. I mean, just to put it really briefly, apocalyptic is it's dreams, it's visions, it's revelations. It's an alternative perspective on things. You know, the word apocalypse in Greek, that word doesn't show up here, but that word simply means an unveiling. It's a revelation. That's what we talk about the book of Revelation. It's literally the apocalypse of mm. John. So it's a revelation. Revelation simply means a revealing. It's an unveiling of something different that we don't have eyes to see. Gotcha. So we'll talk about that more, but it's a shift in genre. It's very obvious. Anybody who's reading this in English can pick up on that. They don't have to be Hebrew, Aramaic scholar to notice that. It helps. Well, what would help is knowing that the language here is the same as what we've seen in chapter two to seven. So in chapter one, Daniel was written in Hebrew, chapters two through seven, it's Aramaic, and then chapters eight through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. And as we've also identified, chapter two through seven have this chiastic structure that shows that these chapters belong together. Chapter seven isn't something different. It's connected structurally to what precedes in chapters two through seven. So even though it begins a new genre in the book, a new half of the book, it's still related to what goes before. And this structure, as I see it, highlights the significance of this chapter, a chapter that talks about what kings and kingdoms will do to those that are under their power, oftentimes, and it reveals the hope, the promise of what God can do, the way God is going to intervene and save his suffering people. And so it's a really important chapter. 
And so these are Daniel's dreams. We start reading this chapter and it says, you know, this is when Belshazzar, the guy who gets to see the hand on the wall. Mm -hmm. So we're going back in time a little bit. Daniel's probably in his 70s or something like Mm -hmm. that, technically, when this happens. Which tells you again that this is designed this way. Curated. Yeah, it's not pure chronology. Which is confusing. Like, why not just put it in order? That's the point. The form suggests that there's something else we should be seeing. Tyler, when you edit this podcast, (laughs) you're going to trim all of the mistakes we've made, the times when we had to reread parts of the scriptures to get it right so it's a pleasant experience for the listener. Mm -hmm. That's what the curators who put together the Bible did, is they wanted to make sure that it was very clear about what theme was going to come out of this. The way I like to think about apocalyptic literature is it takes as an assumption that God reveals God's self through history, through human history. And it uses fantastic, but like dripping with colorful Mm. imagery in order to describe something that is even more real than our reality Mm. as we can see it. And that's why the prophets and the writers like to talk about for those with ears to hear and Mm. eyes to see, if your senses are attuned to seeing the world the way that God has revealed the world, then you'll be able to kind of see through this imagery. It's so creative the Mm -hmm. way they have to do that because it's not just going to be like a bullet point list of yeah. these are the things you must perceive to understand how be God is revealed. Though. It would be easier, but it would be so much less true, right? You're an artist. And when you make videos, right. like you design your videos in ways that are supposed to draw prey upon our emotions in a lot of ways. It's not that you're being manipulative, but you're mm-hmm. helping us understand something that you can't perceive sometimes apart from the art, apart from the images, sure. apart from the poetic language that you use. And that's what apocalyptic does in a lot of ways. So let's wade into it. We're getting these four beasts. And I think one thing that a lot of people like to do with this part, and they're like, well, these are four beasts representative in the tribulation of the end times or something along those lines. But let's just like dial it back real fast. This is a dream from Daniel. And we have a bunch of combination of animals. Before we get to any of that stuff, we've got some animals. What's going on here with these weird beasts coming out of the sea? Talking about these monsters and the way this reads, it's like art direction put into words. This is what I want the artist to craft for me. And I'm going to try to describe it. I don't know, Tyler, if you do a lot of work (laughs) with clients Uh uh, that have maybe less of a sense of how to put into words what their creative vision is. Nobody's ever tried to combine a lion and eagle's wings. You know, I actually suggested that you should do this. Yeah, Yeah, you did. (laughs) And I said, there's no way I'm putting somebody in that costume. It doesn't make any sense. The only person I put that costume on is you. But if you want to picture the actual art direction, go a few miles down south to the Oriental Institute and the University of Chicago, and you can see some of the Babylonian monumental statues that they've got there. I think that's the kind of art genre that we're picturing. We wanted to do that so badly, and it's closed. We were actually going (laughs) to for the book. I encourage you to go down. I think it's free whenever you feel safe to go back to a museum. Yeah. You look at Babylonian art and mosaics at this time, even like Mars. Marduk is a combination, the god of the Babylonians. Well, now you're just, you're bringing up... I said Marduk, and, this, and then now you're like you're off. You're speaking off my love language. Yeah. So yeah, I, what these opening verses do is they draw upon imagery that would have been very familiar to Babylonians. It's familiar to readers of the Bible, at least those who are kind of in tune with what's going on in Genesis 1. You have an image of a dark, chaotic type of sea. Genesis 1-2 describes dark, stormy conditions where what's called the Spirit of God, also can be translated as a wind from God, is hovering over the sea. 
And then you have these beasts that emerge. And what's important in the Babylonian creation account, what would be called Enuma Elish in Babylonian, in that story, you have this chief god Marduk who becomes king of the gods. That's what it's fundamentally about is how Marduk becomes king of the gods. And he does it by overcoming an array of monsters, but especially one sea monster known as Tiamat. And so this image of beasts sort of emerging from the sea is very familiar to Babylonians and their mythology. And the book of Genesis is related to this a lot of ways. Genesis 1 seems to be in communication in ways with what's going on in the Babylonian creation account and other creation accounts from around the world. And it teaches a similar message that God is king of the world, that God has control over the chaotic storms and seas of this world, and he is in control. So it's picking up on this imagery to teach us something about God and what he's going to do in this world. So the first eight verses is all we're reading today. Why is it that you had us read just these ones for today? Sure, because there's a significant shift in verse nine that deserves our attention, gotcha. that de- deserves a special focus. It's also a fun cliffhanger. Yeah, it is a fun cliffhanger. Yeah, right? We've got these four monsters. How are we now going what to get out do? of this situation? Exactly. What possibly can God do to yeah. free us? Yeah, it lets you sit in that, forces you to sit in that. It doesn't allow us to have the resolution that the rest of the vision gives us. So we've got this dream. We've got four beasts. What should we be taking from these four beasts? There are a number of things. I think the first thing is if we pay attention to what we've been reading before, these beasts aren't just beasts. They're images of things in our world. Again, I don't want to jump the gun too much and tell you exactly what Daniel's going to learn, but we've seen how kings have devolved into beasts. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar become a beast. And so when we think about that, we need to start thinking about what are the beasts of our world? What are the things that might sort of sit behind these images? Not that everything in this image, this vision, vision is supposed to be identified because I don't think that's exactly how we're supposed to read it. But they do signify things. And it's a challenge also for us, as we've been talking about, to consider, you know, we oftentimes think about the beast as our opponents. Is it possible that we might actually ever be the beasts? Yeah, that's that's a good point. And that's something I think just right now in our world, our socioeconomic situation, these are things that we have to be considering and asking of ourselves. So that was going to be my next question. So we've got characters in this story. They're a little bit more colorful than what we've had so far and maybe less relatable. I don't have iron teeth, but they are representative and are doing certain things. They still have actions that they're performing. So what are the characters that we are able to identify with as us? Or should we just like delay that process for tomorrow? Well, sure. Notice some of the things they're doing. They're crushing, they're devouring. Those are words that we've seen previously in the book of Dean. In fact, if you look at the chapter immediately before this, chapter six, you have these conspiracies conspirators. Oftentimes we've talked about the kings as being sort of the great evil powers, right? In the book of Daniel, will actually power those who use it for their own good, those who manipulate others. Those people aren't always sitting at the top of the hierarchy. Hierarchy or sometimes they're sitting at, they're sitting in, in all sorts of levels. And the conspirators in the book of Daniel in chapter 6 specifically, they sometimes manipulate situations for their own good. Daniel 6:24 specifically talks about how they falsely accuse. Well, that word falsely accused uses the this word devour. That's part of it. It also talks about how beasts end up crushing their bones as a result of their actions. Well, here we have beasts who are crushing others. And so when you start making those connections and seeing that the beasts in this chapter do this sort of thing, and we've seen people perform these sorts of actions, yeah. we need to put ourselves in their shoes or identify those who might be in positions like them. So you said it wouldn't be helpful for us to be Aramaic scholars, but it sure seems like there are still well, some, you can do still some ties, it, you know, you can see it for sure. But you know, you said the other day that scripture and the way it's written is beautiful. It's a work of art. There 
there are words and comparisons that are really like unbelievable. And that's the nuance that we are reading and can't always get from like the English translations. Right? Yeah, you always have to make a decision when you're translating things. What am I trying to get across? And almost always what gets lost is the art, the form. There's a style here. There's word plays that are happening here. There are things that readers of the original languages of scripture would just naturally see because it's there right in front of them and we're yeah. going to miss it. And that's just the consequence of translation. Well, thanks for interpreting being the art curator for us no. and interpreting <laughs> some of these. Like, yeah, this is weird. I, you should be the one who's, listen, I can't speak Aramaic. And what I would actually point out to people, because Kenny asked this question the other day, it's really not that hard. Like if you get the right tools in front of you, I use Logos Bible software. And yeah, I mean, I've taken an Aramaic class, you know, everything in my degree was geared towards understanding and mastering Hebrew, but I don't have to know those things really to notice, to observe these things. Like I can get good resources in front of me, study Bibles, commentaries, and it's really easy to do word searches that can help you see where have these words yeah. been used before. And that's the number one thing I do when I read a passage of scripture. I click a word, I see where has this been used elsewhere, and then I start to make those connections. And as soon as I start seeing those connections, I see how later books in the Bible pick up on ideas and themes in earlier books, and it helps you understand really what's going on in a book like Daniel. Yeah. I love the way that Brendan started talking about creation, the chaotic waters that existed that the spirit is hovering over. This is the bed from which these empires come out of, because I think it is an assumption of apocalyptic literature that God is not stopping creating. Mm -hmm. God never stops creating. And empires desperately want you to forget that. Mm. For Christians, especially in some of the darker parts of our past, when we have colluded with empire, we have to make concessions for some of our country's history. Yeah. What Christianity became was deism, mm. which is exactly the opposite as yeah. believing that God is continuing to create. So deism is this idea that God's done with his process. It's almost like he's right. the gardener who doesn't come back to tend the garden. He just like plants ivy and just lets it run. But these like beasts, if they're continuing to grow out and create, then there is something that God is still working on and still doing. And I think that the meta metaphors presented here, I think it might be helpful if we could even figure out prematurely from reading Daniel's interpretation of it, like what are these beasts supposed to represent sure. in the creation that God is still doing? There are multiple ways you can read this. It's also just worth noting here that there's an intense debate about a lot of things in the book of Daniel, but also the identification of these four beasts. Let's just talk briefly about the way they're identified. What this vision, what this chapter will go on to say is they represent four different kingdoms. With the help of chapter 8, which also talks about beasts with little horns and things that are related to what we see in Daniel 7. The way a majority, I think, of scholars today would read it is these four visions, at least when the book of Daniel was written, were designed to represent four empires, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks, with it culminating around a figure that we've talked about before, Antiochus Epiphanes, an arrogant king who sets himself up as God and does all sorts of terrible things to the people of God. I think even without any more context, let's just stop there. Because what we're talking about here is empire and established rule, right? And those beasts are, you know, even without the context, because we can get into it and be like, oh, what does this represent? What is this? Mm -hmm. I think the point to take away, even from these first eight chapters, is Daniel's having visions and dreams about empire and conquerors, right? And that's what we've been reading throughout the entire book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're trying to think of this in the context of tribulation, oh, sure. It would be so easy to be like, well, COVID's 
got to be number three because it's <laughs> it's tough. And, you know, depending on your political leanings, I think this political leader is right here. And, you know, this sure. has definitely got to do with global warming or climate change. This has to do with that. You know, I think the disagreement that a lot of people have when they're going through Daniel is like they're looking for signs in their world that something could be bad enough to be described as a beast. But the context for which we're reading this is empire and empires are represented by the beasts. And we have the kind of interpretive wink-wink suggestions yeah. from the very beginning of this yeah. chiastic structure, yeah. as you were talking about. This began with the statue that is being built yeah. with four different building materials. And each of those building materials, as you go up the statue, yeah. is a different empire. So Daniel gives us the context to read these dreams. And it'd be very strange for us to jump to like you know, oh, yeah. present day, where it'd be like, we should jump and well, use this as a scripture to back up like, oh, this is the end times because of COVID. Yeah. Yes and no. Yeah. You know, is that what you're... No, we can go yeah. into a lot of depth as to why Christians received an interpretive tradition that neglected and forgot Jewish history. So Jewish history, even into the first century, which is like the New Testament, this would mean something to them. This was history to them and interpreted that way, right? That's right. It's really important for apocalyptic groups of Jewish people in the first century, of which Jesus was one of those prophets, one of those representatives. He's more than that, but he's at least that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. And groups like John the Baptist's, the Essenes, mm -hmm. I'm not conflating those two groups, but yeah. for a group that is now being occupied by yet another empire, this language, this genre of literature is so important for them, both reminding themselves of their cultural identity, but also giving them hope. Yeah. So what's and the new empire that they're being ruled by? Middle of the second century is when the Greeks, led by Antiochus Epiphanes, overthrew and took over Israel. We've talked about him. Judea. Yeah. In between there, for a brief sliver of time, in a very specific geographic area around Jerusalem, mm -hmm. the Jewish people were able to get control back. Yeah. And these are the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees. This is the story of Hanukkah. For about 100 years, they had control. But then in 64 BC, a new empire rose up. Rome. I've heard of them. Conquered. Yeah. Yes, the I've Romans. What have they ever done big. for us? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's a continuation of that story of trying to hold the truth that God doesn't stop being involved with yeah. God's people and doesn't stop that creative process, but trying to hold this with the first eight verses yeah. of Daniel 7, that there's just one empire after another yeah. that is dominating us, is oppressing us. Yeah. And so, it's what becomes so interesting, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow, but Jesus picks up on this language, you know, you see it in Mark 13, you see it in Mark 14, where he draws on language, imagery from the book of Daniel, Daniel 7 specifically, to talk about how there are people in his own world that were acting like these beasts, mm -hmm. the Romans, but also people he was much more closely connected to as well. And that's the really nefarious thing yeah. about the Romans is the way that they controlled mm. people in these, what they set up as Roman provinces, yeah. is they would establish a temple if they already had one in place. Mm. And for the Jewish people, they already had one in place. They would install someone like Herod the Great yeah. who would build it up for them. And
And then they can control the community through that temple system. And that's exactly what you see for the Jewish people in this time, is that Rome continues to exert their authority by controlling the temple system, by minting the right coins to use in the temple system, and by installing their own high priests. So this isn't the same high priesthood that David descended from. This isn't the same high priesthood that goes from Old Testament times. This is something new that's installed by a foreign power. And the way that the Jewish authorities in those specific political groups in Jerusalem got their power, got their authority, is by their willingness to collude with this Mm -hmm. foreign government. Yeah, so just like briefly, no spoiler. I mean, the spoilers should be this obvious. When Jesus was like crucified, the high priests are going to Herod or Herod's power structure that he's set up to be like, hey, we want to kill this guy because they don't even have that authority, but they know that he does. And there's like a power handoff and trade-off to keep people happy, to keep the high priests of the temple system happy. You've got a political reality and these are the beasts that they view they're under and they've become that, like you said, very often when we are under control of a beast or a foreign power or even just like a system as God's people in order to get things done or get an agenda accomplished, we often end up colluding with it. You know, that's a nationalism. That's a way of compromising the way that God intended for things to be. And so we'll get more into the New Testament understanding of this tomorrow. I don't want to get too far into it. Yeah, that's fair. But I think it comes back and stems back to we've lost those assumptions. One, that God doesn't stop creating. And two, that God doesn't reveal God's self through human history. When we don't believe those things anymore, we're left on our own. And when we try to do it on our own... We uh, have 2020. Right, exactly. And that's why we talk about this idea that there was an original meaning. What was Daniel 7 originally about? But then you move into the first century. How does this apocalyptic vision continue to speak to the people of God? How does it speak to Jesus himself? And it's a little bit different because the terrain is different, the context is different, but the same sort of thing is happening. And this is why when you asked a question earlier, I said yes and no. It's yes, there was a meaning then. And I don't mean that scripture changes me. I think when we understand scripture the right way, it means the same thing then as it does today. But when you apply it today, when you enter into this hermeneutical process and you look at how does this speak to us in our world, it reveals the same sort of thing is happening. That there are Mm -hmm. empires that use and abuse their authority to hurt the people of God. And the question is, do we have eyes to see? Are we going to stay loyal to him even when we feel crushed, even when we feel threatened? Are we going to choose to stay loyal to the king? Are we going to compromise and give in to the powers of this world? That's kind of where I want to leave today, too, because it is a cliffhanger day, right? Luckily, we're all reading this in the same week. So day 13, we'll go right into day 14, and we'll keep on the edge of your seat for what the rest of this means. But it was the reflection question for today. You know, how has God already been opening your eyes throughout the book of Daniel? I think even today, with the shift in genre and the shift in seeing scripture, I think this is somewhat mind-blowing for a lot of people, that scripture is even this complex, and that it plays off each other, and that, you know, there isn't one way to read it. I can't just like grab what I want out of this verse. There's so much nuance to scripture and there's so much that usually is not taught. And that's the confusing thing about things like Daniel 7, because we want that, right? 
Yeah, I think that's such a good point because yes, scripture has a meaning, an original intended meaning. And for this original intended meeting, it's the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks. But I think it's really appropriate that we stop right now at verse 8 because it also feels like that this is where we're at in 2020. Yeah. And there's a sense that both of those are true. One is like a spiritual sense or an experiential mm. sense, and one is our doing our best at identifying our assumptions and identifying where the assumptions of the original intended culture mm. is and noticing the difference and associating with that other culture in love. That's an interpretive method is love. You touched on something that was very interesting, which is like, you know, coming to terms with the cultural expectation versus the cultural reality of where we should be mm -hmm. through the eyes of love. And that's kind of been the theme that we've talked about is the context for Daniel, having eyes to see, right? And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that 2020 would be the year that we delve into some of these things, you know, mm -hmm. where there's so much tension culturally and apply that to whatever realm you want. And I think that there's some irony to the fact that 2020 might be the year that we all finally have eyes to see, right? So this language of eyes to see and ears to hear is something that shows up for a lot of the prophets yeah. in the Bible. And I think it comes from Isaiah, and it might be specifically Isaiah 6. And what Isaiah is saying to his people is that you have stopped worshiping the real God, and that's why you can't see God. That's why you can't hear God. You have started to resemble the deaf and blind idols that you've been worshiping. And you know this is true when you're reading apocalyptic literature, because it mm. takes as an assumption that God continues to create and God continues to be involved in human history. And if you've stopped believing in that, it's going to be hard because you're going to start resembling whatever idols that you have set up in place of God. Mm. I think especially in America, the church has forgotten what the church should be caring for and has allowed itself to collude with an empire and tried to get that empire to care for the things that that we should be caring for, yeah. which is traditionally for Christianity, it's caring for the poor, it's caring for the sick, and it's caring for education, right? Yeah, it's the least of these. Right, right, exactly. It's the, you know, let these children come to me, and it is caring for the widow and caring for the immigrant, caring for the poor. Right. I mean, that could be anything, but I think there is something really applicable to today, even in just establishing what are the beasts in these first eight verses, is to take that and apply it to our lives and be like, you know what? What expectations do we have of those beasts in our lives? And by beasts, I mean the things that rule over us or have power over us? What is our expectation? Do we actually expect those to be acting in the name of God and doing God's work? Or are we actually being honest about what our place is in doing God's work for ourselves and establishing a culture that is about doing God's work and not expecting the systems, the beasts, the empire that is over us to do that on our behalf? Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.